Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like patios, agility, and berets. Oh, I love... Should we do berets? Have we, yes, we, I, we've I, done I, hats, haven't we? But we should do berets in particular. I, I met um, the father of one of my son's friends um, arrived at a, uh, a kind of a family meal just the other week, wearing the most fantastic beret. Um, so I'm I'm all inspired by them. It was a nice wool one, uh, very stylish, and I think we should um, find out more about the history of berets. Do you have a beret, Completely Sam agree. Willis? Mm, I've got an orange... Well, there is one in the house. I wouldn't say that I have one. But there is there is one in the Willis residence. Yes, I inherited mm. from my granny, who used mm. to wear them a lot. Oh, nice. I think we have a red dress-up one. Uh, or we could do sprouts pouts and louts clouts doubts and flouts i love the idea of doing pouts and flouts flouts is all about (laughs) rule breaking and pouting is about i don't know what pouting is about we should explore Mm. that however moods moods yes moody teenagers um however for the moment we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways who knew for example that the history of mothers is one of my favorites of all time is in fact all about freud's controversial oedipus complex it's about the archaeological site of bampo in china discovered in 1953 it's also all about metal for motherhood, the cross of honour handed out to mothers in Nazi Germany, Stalin's order of maternal glory, and it's also all about maternal conflict and violence in the Paston letters, all the way through to 17th century diary extracts of a worried mother, Lady Anne Clifford, or who knew that the history of divorce is in fact all about Henry VIII's divorce from Catherine of Aragon, the roles played by Wolsey, Cromwell and Cranmer before analysing the Reformation Parliament and the break for Rome. Of course, that is one of our brilliant homeschooling episodes. 
And they were very good, those homeschooling ones. So I, I do them. go back and listen to the um, back catalogue and check those out. Um, let me introduce my uh, fellow presenter. This one got a bit confused, James. You'll have to bear with me. <laughs> Mine uh, if, too. History, <laughs> if history were a hand, soft and smooth or gnarled and callous, this man would be both hand surgeon and manicurist, carefully shaping the cuticles of the past, mending any cracked phalanges, allowing that hand the full scale of movement required to make gestures and signs, to hold pens, to type, so that the historical hand could communicate with the eyes and ears of eager students in the present. But more importantly so that the hand could proudly wear the most exquisite jewellery in the form of rings. No doubt, if it is an old and English ring, then the diamond on top would have been stolen from the mines of India. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. And you may well be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode. Well, this is a mangled monster, if ever there was one. Let's just say that if he were a jewellery-related history, historian he'd only be the king of bling festooned with gold chains and swagger his rep in the historical rap game is legend his powers of archival recovery worthy of diamonds and pearls he ain't no ratner's ripoff he's the real deal mac daddy of the past it's the famous historical adventurer dr sam willis <laughs> hello, hello, hello. Do you like being the, Mac, the real Mac Daddy of the past? Yes, I do. The big Mac Daddy. Yes. Um, the OG. When I wrote, my I wrote my introduction, I came back to it and I realised that actually I'd written an introduction to the history of the hand. Not you have. <laughs> I don't know quite what I was I, doing at all. I, I um, do I, please listen to our podcast on the history of the hand because it's yes, fascinating. Yes. I don't know why I uh, why I have got lots of rap and hip hop uh, here, except <laughs> that I had I went to a terrific dinner at a friend's house and got a schooling of old school hip hop. Um, have you ever come across a group called The Roots? I had not. The Roots no. are extraordinary. So go to wherever you find your downloads from music and check out The Roots. And also an album called Jazzmataz, which is the guru, the guy who was um, in Gangstar, uh, went off and rediscovered all of these sort of legendary uh, jazz musicians and then put them to hip hop. It is the most brilliant album I've heard in ages. Anyway, that is a total kind of segue away from what we're well, talking kind about. Of, it's kind of not, because um, if you think about all of the hip-hop artists oh, and, yes. um, and their jewellery, um, because the, what they wore... Uh, was a really important part of of cultural identity in the you know eighties, uh, early nineties. Is that what we're talking about here? And um, there's a great yeah. example there of how jewellery can be used to um, define social movements. Oh, very good. I remember having a a VW badge on a on a rope. Uh, I didn't yeah. <laughs> I didn't steal it, uh, but a friend did, and I wore it as a sort of totem uh, when I oh. was when I was fifteen years old, fourteen years very old. Good. Uh, slightly square uh, teenager uh, trying to get a rep wearing um, that was the Beastie Boys symbol uh, at the time yeah, yeah. I wonder why why do they go for the V-dub that's weird isn't it I don't know I don't I can't yeah, remember like a, can't a German remember. car manufacturer but it, but, <laughs> what it, are they but, doing? It, but it actually transformed the 
the way that was a time when you could pull out those little um insignias those badges from the front of vws and what this meant was in order to stop them being nicked vw sort of just built them in so that you couldn't actually pull them out they were built into the bonnet after that mm. um the, yeah. the influence of the beastie boys but we are talking about jewelry because joanna our intern our work experience student from plimpton academy uh, came up with this idea and did some uh, research for us and so this has been what has really sort of inspired us to do something around the history of jewelry so sam if you were thinking about the history of jewelry what where would you where would your starting point be um well i would immediately think about m- my own um kind of interaction with historical jewelry have you ever have you ever sort of handled or seen some really amazing historical jewelry i've seen it not handled it but i imagine you okay i imagine you've handled all sorts of historical yeah, but, jewels yes, it, it's amazing how um making tv programs allows curators let you break the rules um <laughs> p- particularly uh jewelry from the armada Ooh, uh, the spanish yes. armada so in various irish museums um that they have them because the ships sank off the north coast of ireland um uh wrecks been discovered um and they've managed to raise uh raise some some of the the jewelry and uh, look after it and um you know i've yeah, been lucky enough to 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 get hold of uh, some of that stuff. Um, particularly the the gold chains, mm. it, uh, single gold chains, but they're about uh, I don't know ten foot long, maybe longer, and so you wear them around and around and around and around your neck um, in the kind of Mister T style. Um, and um, a couple of beautiful salamanders. And this is, of course, is, is gold and jewels which came from South America. Lots of rubies. Um, uh, particularly emeralds, very interesting. So not so much diamonds. Um, diamonds is going to be something I'll talk about later. Um, but diamonds, they have a provenance, or pro- basically all of the diamonds in the world came from India before they were discovered in Brazil in about the 17th century. Um, so if you're talking about jewellery from the Spanish, then you've got to think about empire, you've got to think about South America, and uh, their access to the um, the silver, the gold and the rubies and the emeralds primarily. So that's why um, the the colours of the Armada jewellery, if you search up Armada jewellery, are as they were. So I immediately thought about that. And then, uh, so I'm going to be kind of exploring themes about how you get hold of the precious stones uh, required for kind of exquisite jewellery. Um, royalty particularly, uh, extremely high status jewellery. So the, the ones that survived from the Armada came from incredibly wealthy um, uh, uh, Catholic people um, who were bringing their wealth with them to to England. They were fully expecting to land and stay. Um, and so portable wealth was uh, a, another way of thinking about it uh, as well. And also so many of that jewellery is religious so um, there is definitely a spiritual, almost got a magical element to, to, to the use of jewellery there. So that was my initial thoughts. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Oh, very good. I've just Googled the uh, Armada jewellery. Quite extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. Um, And one of the things that I was thinking about was, I mean, there are different ways of thinking about 
jewellery. So you can think about it in terms of, as we were talking about with the, the rap and hip-hop uh, crews, you know, you've got jewellery there that is about status, it's about bling, it's about showing the wealth that you are, your importance, your value. Um, but also you can think about jewellery in, in other different ways. So it's not so much about display of somebody's rank or status it has a more it has spiritual properties and i think looking at jewelries as amulets or as totems or as powerful charms i think is really really interesting things that are worn on the person to avert evil um and to advance prosperity and this is something that you can trace all the way back to to ancient egypt for example uh you can look at the way in which um the physician galen used amulets um for almost sort of medical medical purposes to protect people. But I've come across some really interesting uh, examples of these. Uh, there's a brilliant book that I, that I often plunder uh, by John Matusiak, I think that's how you pronounce his name, called The Tudors in 100 Objects. If you don't have, have a copy of it, uh, go out and buy one. Um, there are a couple of sort of really interesting objects that he's got here that are jewels that are connected with sort of magical, um, sort of superstitious powers. And one is something called a call locket, OK? And call is the membrane that covers a newborn baby's head and face uh, after it's left the mother's womb uh, it's completely harmless it's quite rare um, but thought to be quite lucky so it's estimated that only about 80,000 one in 80,000 cases a baby would be born and it's often seen as a really you know, uh, magical, um, uh, spiritual uh, sort of property. Um, people who are born uh, with it are thought to have had the gifts of second sight or healing. And they're called call bearers. And it's thought to safeguard against dangers such as drowning. And this is a time when... Um, you know, life as we've as we know in the past of having looked at accidents you know death was was all around you know there was illness disease medicine was relatively you know unadvanced and so you know there were lots of attempts to try and control you know people people's luck um sailors for example i didn't know whether you knew this but sailors would often carry uh pieces of coal for potency to protect them from from drowning and the example that they've got uh in the book is a locket that has a piece of call in it and it's it reads on it john monson m-o-n-s-o-n born the 10th of september uh, at 12 of the clock at night 1597 now being born at 12 o'clock at night is also you know is also thought to have um importance as well because it enabled uh, the child uh, in this sort of superstition to see ghosts and spectres and this is a really amazing jewel it's a locket made in around 1597 because it's dated it seems to have this piece of coal uh, around it so the piece of coal the skin that um that covered this this baby john monson and it is made of gold with black enamel it measures uh five centimeters in height three centimeters in width so it's a sort of you know fair size uh and it and it is of a, a you know fairly wealthy family of non-noble rank um they're a, they're a fairly wealthy middling sort of of family and what it shows is that those kinds of superstitious tendencies 
were quite prevalent uh, irrespective of what the church was doing to try and um, to try and clamp down on them there was sort of that what quite widespread belief in superstition and witchcraft and we've talked in the past about keith thomas's religion the decline of magic and that's certainly something that he shows throughout the 16th and 17th century and this is a time when there was widespread belief in children you know being being falling falling prey to you know witches and fairies coming along and taking them away spiriting them away out of bed so you know there's a belief in the evil eye for example and so there's an attempt to try and you know protect people so it's a really interesting example here of a, a piece of skin a piece of coal tucked into a locket as a form of amulet another example that they have and this is a, a brilliant example it exists in survives in the victorian albert museum in london and it's something called the danny jewel have you come across the danny jewel no never okay. heard of it okay the danny jewel is is absolutely incredible and it is made out of narwhal horn and it absolutely absolutely amazing they thought that it was they thought that basically it was unicorn horn. Um, it was acquired by the Victoria and Albert Museum in 1917. It was thought to have been made around 1550, and it's in the shape of a ship, and it measures about 8.5 centimetres, and it's a, it contains a semicircular section of narwhal's tusk, and it is mounted in gold and suspended on a chain with three sort of large rings and it belonged to members of the upper sussex gentry family uh, at danny house uh hearst pierpoint um in sussex and it basically as i said they thought that it was a they thought that it was a, a unicorn horn and it was supposed to protect against poison in food and drink uh so it was a sort of again it's a sort of it's the way in which these uh, sort of superstitious objects were made in order to protect people so there we are sam um hmm. uh, amulets yeah amazing uh, amazing having something that's not a jewel on a um on, on jewelry essentially yes, you know exactly. it's um, uh, a bit of human skin i suppose uh does make me think about um, people who have uh, lockets with human hair in Oh um, yes, love a locket. You've come across that. I love yeah. a lo love a locket. Lockets are really interesting because I think they they again have those can have that sort of talismanic power. Um, they're often associated with love, so you'd give a loved one a locket. A locket might have a yeah, hair or, or you know something something precious in it. Maybe a little um, little love note. Um, but yes, I'd love a locket. Wouldn't you love yeah. a locket? A big, big thing in the 18th century lockets. Uh, yeah. well, pe people stealing very... lockets as well. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Uh, they're very personal. I mean, one of the things about the Armada jewellery is it's not... A lot of it is actually not very imaginative, OK? So it's uh, crucifixes, it's big gold chains, um, and this me being slightly cynical here, but it's quite an important point to make. Uh, because if you compare it to other types of jewellery... Um, like the Medici jewellery that was given as gifts. This is in uh, late 16th century Florence. Uh, that's mind-blowing. And they are, they've got a problem there in that um, the Medicis 
are in receipt, incredibly wealthy, and they are in receipt of gifts. But what do you give someone who's basically already got everything? And the answer is that you give them creativity linked with uh, jewel, with, with linked with precious metals and jewels. And um, there are some uh, in the museum, the Florence Museum, just some amazing uh, gifts which were given to them. Not least uh, jeweled insects, micro jewels. So you could have got a dragonfly which is enameled gold with pearl, diamonds, rubies and silver. You've got a lizard, which is enameled gold with mother of pearl and diamonds. You've got a frog, enameled gold with diamonds and a pearl. So very different from the um, the, 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 the very simple uh, but very impressive uh, gold chains of, um, of the Spanish Armada. So um, creativity, I think, is, is hugely important. And that always comes down to taste as well but one key point i wanted to talk about was where these jewels come from in jewelry especially like the, the really really fancy stuff i've mentioned the the south american source of the spanish jewels but what i, I thought about was india as a source of jewelry and i um interviewed uh, uh the historian will dalrymple very famous historian of um of india he's written a book uh, fairly recently on the east india company um and he in his book, he talked about what happened at the siege of Lucknow, um, and this is uh, there's a there's a a defence of a British area within the city from rebel sepoys um, who are Indian soldiers in the in the East India Company, and that all happens during the Indian Rebellion of 1857. And at the end of it, there are descriptions of people carrying away jewels by the boatload literally by the boatload boatloads of precious jewels so i decided to look into this a bit and there's some wonderful stuff which has been written by the, the siege of lucknow um and particularly i came across a great description of, of someone um, researching the the courtesans of lucknow very famous courtesans looking at the the female history of what was going on there now these women actually appear in the civic tax ledgers of 1858 to 1877 um, classed under the occupational category of dancing and singing girls. Um, and uh, some of them were, were um, in the highest tax bracket, so they're the largest individual incomes of anyone in the city. Uh, their names are also listed on lists of property confiscated by British officials um, from Indians who were, uh, have proven involvement in the siege of Lucknow and the, the subsequent rebellion. Uh, there's another list. It's about 20 pages long, records the spoils of war from the siege. Uh, from the siege. And these, uh, these were seized from one set of female apartments. So this is where the courtesan lived. And it's in the palace and garden complex um, called the Kaisar Bagh. Um, and these are the uh, courtesans of uh, Wajid Ali Shah. 300 or more uh, consorts were there when it was seized by the British. And um, it makes you realise quite how um, r remarkable their surroundings were. Um, gold and silver ornaments studded with precious stones, embroidered cashmere wool, wool and brocade, Shawls, bejeweled caps and shoes, silver, gold, jade, amber-handled fly whisks, silver cutlery, jade goblets, plates, spittoons, huckers, silver utensils for serving and storing food and drink, valuable furnishings and a great deal of remarkable jewellery um, which these uh, these women wore. 
And the value of this booty itself was estimated at nearly 4 million rupees in 1857. And that was about 2 rupees to the US dollar in 1857, so maybe $8 million. Um, the whole siege is also interesting because um, there are descriptions of uh, English women fleeing, and this comes down to this idea of jewellery as a portable source of wealth. Um, this is from a book uh, by Germon R.C., A Lady's Diary During the Siege of Lucknow. It was published in 1870. I put on three of each kind of undergarments, a pink flannel dressing gown, and a plaid jacket, and then over all my cloth dress and jacket made out of my habit. I then tied my cashmere shawl round my waist and also Charlie's silver mug and put on a worsted cap and hat and had my cloak placed on the saddle. In my pink dressing gown, I stitched dear mamma's last present to me and I filled several packets with valuables also. In two under ones, I also had my little stock of jewellery and my journal and some valuable papers. I also wore a bustle in which I'd stitched my honnet and lace wedding dress, veil and other items, and two black and white lace shawls so that I was a pretty good size. Um, so that's just one example of people escaping from a dangerous situation with jewellery. But all of this, you know, this idea of, of jewels and, and warfare does raise a very important question of... Um, where do they come from and how should modern nations deal with colonial legacy of looting? Um, it comes back to the point here. India was actually the only source of diamonds in the world until 1725, which is when they discovered diamond mines in Brazil. So if you look at something like the crown jewels and there are a phenomenal amount of diamonds in the crown jewel, diamonds in particular, um, then there is a, a, a serious legacy there that needs to be addressed um, no more so, I suppose, than the Kohinoor diamond, very important Indian diamond, um, written description. It first comes into the Mughal's possession in 1628 when Shah Jahan commissioned a, a magnificent gemstone encrusted throne with a Kohinoor diamond on it. The outside of the canopy was to be of enamel work studded with gems and inside was to be thickly set with rubies, garnets and other jewels and it was to be supported by emerald columns. On top of each pillar there were to be two peacocks set with gems and between each of the two peacocks a tree set with rubies and diamonds, emeralds and pearls. Um, so a remarkable thing and the Kohinoor was part of that, this enormous, enormous diamond. Um, and it eventually is ceded to Queen Victoria, of course, after the British annexation of the Punjab in 1849. It's then been in a variety of crowns. Um, uh, the crown of Queen Alexandra, wife of Edward VII, the crown of Queen Mary in 1911. And finally, the crown of Queen Elizabeth. So this is for the Queen Mum's coronation. Um, uh, so I thought a really interesting thing there. And, it, you know, it, the, the, this whole source of diamonds. I mean, uh, one other point to make about this is, is best made by the Cullinan diamond. So a much more modern one. We think the um, Kohinoor was founded around the 12th century. Uh, so very ancient indeed. But the Cullinan diamond, this comes from a South African diamond mine. Um, and it was found in the early 20th century, around 1907. Uh, it was purchased by the Transvaal colony um, and given as a gift to the English king, Edward VII. Now, the Transvaal government only actually paid 40% of the uh, the money that it was valued at, and they wrote the rest off as diamond tax. So there's 60% of it wasn't actually given to the diamond mine. Um, it was purchased for the, the, the equivalent of 15 million today. 
Um, so the people who received that 40% were the owners of the, of the mine, which was founded in 1902. Um, and the surface manager of the mine, a white man, Frederick Wells, he was the one who brought the stone to the general manager. Was, was, he was cited as discovering it. He received a bonus of £2,000, an enormous amount of money. But the point, of course, is that the, the workforce of the diamond mines consisted mainly of black migrant workers in the 1880s up to the early 20th century. Um, and actually, um, a lot of descriptions say that the Cullinan diamond, unsurprisingly, was found by one of these unnamed black migrant miners who told Wells of his discovery, handed it over. Uh, but this chap, of course, did not receive any bonus at all. So with jewellery, there's, of course, a very, very, very complicated um, imperial legacy that I think really does need to be addressed. Oh, that's very important indeed. And I think I'm picking the the history of the crown jewels i think is a really important uh, issue um i just very briefly want to talk about uh, different kinds of you know jewelry um you you've talked about the gems that are in jewelry but often it's it's actually quite simple things that appear in jewels bones and shells and things like that and you think about the kinds of jewelry that pendants that the maoris uh, might have the use of animal teeth ivory shells you know that neanderthals might use for example and this got me thinking about uh, native american jewelry and there's a wonderful book that i picked up at the british museum by max carucci uh, years ago called ritual and honor warriors of the north american plains and it's a brilliant book and i think it was based on an exhibition certainly on their collections there's a wonderful chapter in it called animal protection and what this is about is all the different sort of parts of animals that were absorbed into native american jewelry but also their clothing and their costumes um, that gave them protective power and i just want to read you this wonderful extract from an iowa war song it's me i am war eagle the wind is strong but i am an eagle I am not ashamed, no, I am not. The twisting eagle's quill is on my head. I see my enemy below me. I'm an eagle, a war eagle. And the book goes on about, the chapter goes on about how the warriors used different parts of, of animals, whether they're skins, feathers, hooves, claws. Um, and they saw animals having being sort of supernatural beings and sort of, you know, uh, and having these protective powers. Uh, and they take parts from foxes, from dogs, from bulls, mosquitoes, um, buffaloes, for example. And all of these would then be incorporated into um, weapons, shirts, hair, shields, personal charms you know that would basically provide them skill and protection during combat and it, the, the book has a whole range of of artifacts from a shirt made of scalp and ermine so it's human hair and ermine tissue that was sort of woven together um, there's another example of a split horn headdress which is a beautiful headdress that belonged to uh, the brave dog society of the blackfoot uh, which is just a stunning um, stunning headdress um, another uh, example is a protective charm a, an armband which is made out of deer hoof and and cotton and brass so it's almost like a, a bracelet that would be worn around the neck but the piece that i was going to talk about was a bear claw necklace 
with a metal star and this is absolutely amazing um it's got one two three four five six seven one two three four five six seven uh big bear claws and then some other beads around it and then uh, an enormous um st uh, metal star and it, it measures in length about 29 centimeters so it's the, almost the size of a, a ruler with the width of 26 centi centimeters and bear claws these are these have a really deep spiritual significance for plains indians because it's associated with the strength and power of bears the the star in itself appears on all sorts of ceremonial ro robes of various sort of plains tribes including the pawnee and the blackfoot and it represents the morning star which is a really important part of plains indians belief and you can see it on the decorations on holy holy man's robes uh, but this would have been worn this kind of um, amulet necklace would have been worn into battle with the bear claw giving power and strength and protection so there we are sam we're back to that sort of back to that idea of of necklaces and amulet and protection and spirituality mm, i love it and also the, the mention of shells and made me think of, of the brilliant shell money that um, comes from the pacific islands you can see that in the british museum i'd urge you all to go and see it it's fabulous carries uh that's it for now guys i hope you've enjoyed our little episode on the history of jewelry i enjoyed it very much and it made me realize how much more there is for us to do we could do maybe a separate one on diamonds or Ooh, shells yes, james we yes, should do that shells, yeah. rings fabulous stuff guys uh thank you very much for listening do please follow me on twitter i'm at dr sam willis and if you're interested in maritime and naval history do do please check out the mariner's mirror podcast it's fantastic and you can follow me on Twitter at James Daybell. You can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and Facebook, so come and check us out there. Check out our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, for our back catalogue and also for signed books. And should you wish to support what we're doing, head over to patreon.com and our Histories of the Unexpected page there, and you can become a patron of Histories of the Unexpected and help us change the way in which people think about the past. But meantime, uh, be well, everyone, and... Uh, uh, take care. Thanks for listening. Bye. Cheerio, guys. Bye-bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.